Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for being here with me today. It is Wednesday, January 18th, and I am going to premiere a new segment today. It will recur on a random basis. I'm going to call it Politicians Behaving Oddly or Badly or Oddly Badly. And I have a feeling with the Republicans in Congress and Kevin McCarthy, their leader, if indeed he can be called their leader, we are going to have much material for my new segment, Politicians behaving oddly or badly or oddly badly. Maybe I'll have Ray write some music for this segment so we have a music bed so that you always know when we're going to be doing this. Okay, but before we get to the oddly badly folks in Congress, I've been trying, with the exception of I think the fact that I mentioned that Governor Pritzker was in Davos, he was invited to come speak to the biggest richest, most important people in the world in Davos, Switzerland. Um, Joe Manchin's been there, and Kirsten cinema has been there. They were um, getting a lot of media attention. Kirsten cinema speaking very since... By the way, she hasn't had a town hall with her constituents in over two years, but she'll fly to Switzerland to talk to a room full of rich people because, you know... They are her people. Anyway, um, she got a lot of attention because she explained once again to this crowd of rich folks just why she and uh, Joe, this uh, gentleman next to her, were just so adamant on not getting rid of the filibuster. And after she said that, uh, she and Joe Manchin high-fived. Yay! Let's high-five this stupid policy, this stupid procedure that has no basis in our Constitution. It's simply the way the Senate, it's just a rule they adopted. You would think that in a democracy, a majority of people could decide things, but you would be mistaken. Because the filibuster means that a small number of people will always be able to derail the wishes of the majority and dictate to the wishes of the majority. Kirsten Cinema, of course, is no longer a Democrat. She's now an independent because I'm sure her polling showed her what everybody else knows, that she doesn't have an ice cube's chance in hell of winning to keep her seat in 2024 as a Democrat because the Democrats are just disgusted and appalled by her. So she has declared herself an independent. And I know we have a ways till 2024. Um, and nobody other than you, I would assume her is officially in the race. But, um, the three most likely people, Kirsten Cinema, Carrie Lake, yes, that Carrie Lake, the one who is still trying to 
find a way for the courts to decide that she actually is governor of Arizona. I know the vote didn't go her way, but see, there was this and there was that. And let's explore all of our options. And if not, well, then I'll always run for Senate. Kirsten Cinema, Carrie Lake is running as a Republican and probably Ruben Gallegos running as a Democrat. Kirsten Cinema can't win as a Democrat. And here's the fun fact. She can't win as an independent, but she can act as a spoiler. So is that is that her plan? Is her plan to position herself so that she can keep a Democrat from winning? Therefore, therefore, Democrats to try to get her to drop out of the race or throw her support to Gallegos will offer her things. I don't know. What kinds of things do you think she wants? I'm sure she'll tell somebody. Anyway, I don't know. You know, I generally... I generally don't make fun of the way people look. I am human, so sometimes I do. But generally, I try to not do that. But Kirsten Cinema is begging me. Did you see any of those pictures from Davos? She is wearing a polar bear. She apparently has black pants and a polar bear draped around her body. It's getting a lot of attention on social media. The comedian Paul Rudnick posted a picture of Kirsten Cinema with her polar bear shirt and another picture of um, those um, fuzzy uh, car seats and said, one of these serves a purpose. And I'll give you a hint. It isn't Kirsten Cinema. Those fleece car seats um, that you can car covers. Yeah. So. Uh, that um, initiates our politicians behaving oddly or badly or oddly badly segment. But there's more. Wait, as they say in the commercials, there's more. Committee assignments are becoming public. Oh, boy. You know, George Santos, the only um, sitting congressman uh, currently Subject to an extradition request by another country. Brazil wants us to hand Santos over to them so that they can uh, prosecute him for fraud. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. Now, they weren't super high profile. Kevin McCarthy gave him two committees. Let me say that again. Kevin McCarthy has put George Santos on two committees. Not only is the country of Brazil trying to extradite him so that he can face criminal trial there, um, he has lied about everything. The one company that he claimed to have worked for that he apparently did work for is under investigation as a Ponzi scheme. He lied about his ethnicity, he lied about his parentage, he lied about his schools, he lied about his previous work history. And um, despite the Republicans in Nassau County saying that they want him expelled from Congress and that he better not try showing up at any of their events or meetings because he is not welcome, 
Uh, Kevin McCarthy not only is not making any moves to try to get rid of him, he put him on two committees. Two committees. Because, again, with Kevin McCarthy, we're going to have to remember that Donald Trump mindset. Everything he does doesn't have anything to do with Bakersfield, California. Not It doesn't have anything to do with the voters he represents. Doesn't have anything to do with Congress. Doesn't have anything to do with the country. Everything Kevin McCarthy does must be viewed through the lens of what is good for Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy doesn't have much of a voting cushion. Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to take the chance of what might happen if George Santos leaves Congress and we get either a new appointee or a special election. Kevin's got too few votes as it is. And as long as he stands behind George Santos and doesn't push in any way, shape, or form for his removal, Kevin McCarthy has at least one Republican vote that is solid, that he can count on no matter what. So uh, don't look to Kevin McCarthy to try to encourage George Santos to resign. And George Santos seems to be pretty impervious to those calls anyway. Apparently, there is no legal way um, to force him to resign. And he said, eh, you know what? I'm here. Get used to it. So he's on two committees. And um, that's not the worst committee news. The worst committee news. Oh, well, you know what? I need to take a break. We've got worse news for you. In our new segment, politicians behaving oddly or badly or oddly badly. We'll be back with more after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Think Theory Radio. Theoretical astrophysicist Dan Hooper. If there's someplace a, a light year away from now, there's nothing I can do now that can influence that place in less than a year. No matter what I do, no matter how I build my quantum machine, or no matter what I entangle or what I quantum teleport, nothing I can do here can affect that until a full year has passed, allowing light to get there at the speed of light. Think Theory Radio with Damien Perdue. Saturdays at 6 p.m. on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As we continue on in our brand new segment, politicians behaving oddly or badly or oddly badly, we're going to talk about committee assignments. There are some committees in the House of Representatives that really seriously have important work to do. One of those is the Oversight Committee. They are the ones who can start investigations. That's a pretty powerful committee. Remember that the night or multiple nights 
when Kevin McCarthy was trying to get elected. Remember how Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared to be uh, attached to him, attached to his side like a zebra muscle? And, uh, you know, she was taking selfies with him. She was just yucking it up with him. Well, she has been rewarded. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the former QAnon-embracing congressperson who has in the past said that 9-11, at least part of the attacks on 9-11, were a hoax, that actually no plane, if there's never been any proof that a plane flew into the Pentagon. Did you know that? Did you also know that there is evidence that some government employees are active worshipers of Satan? These are two of the many amusing but not quotes from Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kevin McCarthy's new best friend, who now has a position on the House Oversight Committee, along with far far-right congressperson Paul Gosar. Remember, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar didn't have any committees before because they were just considered too wackadoodle to put on the most tame committee. Now both of them are on one of, if not the most important committee in the whole House of Representatives, along with their very good friend, Scott Perry, And, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene's archenemy, Lauren Boebert. Hey, do you think there'll be more shouting matches in the bathroom between Boebert and Greene like there was the night uh, Kevin McCarthy got elected? Or do you think now that they're both on the same committee, they'll just shout at each other across the room? That's what my money's on. (laughs) And you thought C-SPAN was for nerds. The You know, when C-SPAN starts covering the meetings of this House Oversight Committee, oh, I am so there for that. So, yeah. Oh, and, you know, because Marjorie is his new best friend, not only has she been put on the Oversight Committee, she's now on the Homeland Security Committee. She is now on Homeland Security as well as oversight, two of the most important committees in Congress. The woman who said that there's no evidence that a plane flew into the Pentagon on 9-11 and that um, there are active government workers who are worshiping Satan. She's now in charge of security. You know, uh, CNN, I was a little... Weirded out. CNN hired, um, what's her name, Farahi. She was one of the spokespeople under Trump. She was apparently the spokesperson for the Pentagon when Marjorie Taylor Greene was making these public comments that as she thinks the plane flying, the, the alleged plane flying into the Pentagon was a hoax. To her credit, Farahi reached out to Marjorie Taylor Greene and said, I would, you know, I'm the press secretary, I'm the spokesperson, please come to the Pentagon, let's set a time, and I will show you where there are still marks on the building. I will show you the evidence that a plane did indeed fly into the Pentagon. I know you're shocked to hear that Marjorie Taylor Greene never responded. 
She has been trying lately to walk back some of the craziest QAnon stuff. But remember, this is the woman who chased one of the Parkland survivors down a sidewalk screaming at them. You know, I understand that when you're a political animal, you can um, maybe change your spots to stripes if stripes are currently trending. But I don't think the basic nature of who you are can be changed. And anybody who would follow a Parkland high school shooting survivor down the sidewalk screaming at them to try to get some kind of reaction or viral moment, that's not a human being that I want in public life, let alone on an important committee. You know, she can try to hide the crazy. She can try to reinvent herself as some kind of sane, reliable legislator, but I don't buy it, I don't, and I never will. Okay, that we're wrapping up our first Politicians Behaving Oddly or Badly or Oddly Badly segment with that. Now I'm going to give you some interesting news, potentially good news. Um, the Manhattan District Attorney is a guy by the name of Alvin Bragg. The Manhattan DA's office has for a long time been investigating Donald Trump. Shortly after Alvin Bragg took over that job, the two lawyers who were in charge of investigating Donald Trump, they both quit. And basically they said, at least one of them said in the resignation letter, and also if you read between the lines, that they no longer felt that there was support for their work in the DA's office. Kind of laying it right at the feet of Alvin Bragg, that whether he just didn't want the controversy, didn't have the stomach for it, whatever. Supposedly, he called them into his office, and in, in, in court sometimes, a judge can really rake an attorney over the coals. Um, and really make them defend even the smallest aspects of their case. But generally, that's not something your boss does. And they both said this Alvin Bragg called them in and was like, what about this and what about that and what about this? And they said, you know what? Not going to work for this guy. Not going to just go through the motions and pretend we're doing an investigation that we know isn't going to go anywhere. Not going to happen. And they quit. Well, Mr. Bragg has seems, seems possibly to have changed his mind. Mr. Bragg asked former Trump fixer Michael Cohen to come in for a three-hour interview. Michael Cohen was interviewed literally almost a few minutes after he got out of that by Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. And he said, you know, the prosecutor asked me not to say anything. You know, Nicole, how these things work. I can't talk about anything that they just asked me about. He said, but I will tell you, I don't think that's going to be my final appearance before them. I think that they are 
uh, going to schedule another interview with me. And he said also, too, I don't want to talk about anything of substance from that because he said, I think that would only help one person and I don't want to help that person. I've made it clear I am finished helping that person and that's Donald Trump. So if you read between the lines, because she kind of asked him at the end, she was like, hey, Michael, you know, two attorneys quit under this guy with the implication that he didn't have the stomach to go after Trump. You know, would you say that that's changed? And Michael said, well, you know, I'm again, I'm trying to abide to the agreement that I wouldn't say anything about anything. But I will tell you that I don't think this is the last conversation that I am going to be having with the Manhattan D.A. And I think that down the road, people are going to be surprised and pleased. So there you have it. There's your little bit of good news for the day. You know. Uh, And again, I don't want to get your hopes up because, as we all know, lawyer time, lawyer time is a lot different. Lawyer and judge time is a lot different than real people time. But we'll see. Hey, you know, good news. We'll take it Um, real quick. Lady B, I'm going to do the ticket giveaway now. Get that done. You know, we're doing the mayoral forum. You have heard of that, right? On the 26th downtown. Noon to 2, actually at 11 a.m., there's lunch. So 11 to 2.30, let's call it that. We're giving away a pair of tickets to our forum. Uh, it's going to be at the Morningstar Auditorium across from Daly Plaza in Chicago. If you are the third caller, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278, you can come and watch the forum in person. All the candidates are going to be there. Lunch at 11 a.m. We'll get started about noon. Me, Santita, Patty are all going to be there moderating. And our forum sponsored by Morningstar Roofers Local 11 and Oscar Iberian Rugs. Now, remember, this is a contest, so you have to be 18. You have to live in the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area. One entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law. You can only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are on our website, WCPTA20.com. Click on the contest tab. Good luck. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT820. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT820 where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So last night I was uh, scrolling through social media. I believe it was Instagram because, you know, I usually, as I've told you, fill my Instagram with dog pictures and That's very soothing at night. But I also uh, follow a few political groups on Instagram, and one of those is Indivisible Aurora. And all of a sudden, I came across this posting of um, they reposted a statement from the ACLU of Illinois. And the ACLU of Illinois posted this. We filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of Aurora Pride, challenging the city's special events ordinance that gives the city police a veto by allowing the full police force not to staff an event 
if they do not agree with the message. This policy must change. I saw that and I was like, what? This can't be right. So, of course, I immediately reached out to Ed Yanka and asked him if he would join me on the radio to talk about this. Ed, how are you, first of all? I'm well, Joan. I, I, do I still say Happy New Year? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, well, then Happy New Year. I'm well, thank you. How about you? Um, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I, I love January because a lot of people experience a letdown after the holidays, but my birthday is in January. So as far as I'm concerned, the party just keeps going. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's a good attitude to have. I think that's healthy. That's a very good attitude to have. <laughs> so do I read this correctly? So if the police department in Aurora, Illinois, decides that they don't want um, – to support any kind of, let's say, the Pride Parade. They don't want to support uh, LGBTQ rights. They can say, ah, you know what, uh, we're, n- we're sorry, we're not going to be there in any capacity to provide security or, um, you know, traffic control or anything. This is insane. It, it really is. And, and you know, frankly, um, it, we have not heard or run across anything like this before. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just creates havoc uh, and problems and, you know, leads to all kinds of confusions and issues for people trying to plan events. What happened in this instance was um, that last year after the pandemic, Aurora Pride was going to host their parade again. Uh, they were very excited about it, filled out all the forms, put down the deposit, did all the things. And then they were contacted by a group of LGBTQ officers from Aurora who, you know, wanted to know if if they could march with them. And the, the, you know, organizers welcomed them to be part of the march. Um, But but then the the officers themselves actually raised, you know, the question of, of would, you know, would there be any objection to them, you know, being from law enforcement, since, as we all know, uh, the idea of pride is really rooted in objections to police brutality aimed at the LGBTQ community at Stonewall. The pride folks said, yes, you know, we're still happy to have you march, but we prefer that you not march in your uniforms or uh, with, with any sort of weapons. Um, the local group said they were okay with that. It was, it was they, as far as the, the pride organizers knew. This event that, you know, everything was over, they were settled, everything was good. And then uh, the mayor of Aurora, uh, Richard Irvin, who at the time was a candidate for governor, (sighs) began to make this a public issue and said, well, they don't want police officers marching in their parade, which was never the case. Uh, And in fact, the issue of any the, the, the group would have never had any conversation uh, over whether or not there was a concern, um, you know, if the officers themselves had not raised it in the first instance. Uh, as the result of that, um, a number of officers in Aurora did what, what under this ordinance they are permitted to do, which was to say that they simply were not going to volunteer to provide the policing uh, that was necessary as part of this event. And, you know, at, at that point, Aurora threatened to withdraw the permit um, for the event. Uh, we had to go, you know, to extraordinary lengths to make sure 
uh, that that permit wasn't changed. Um, but, you know, after Aurora said they were revoking the permit, then they said they were going to fix the problem by offering officers uh, triple time, triple overtime in order to uh, uh, appear at the parade or to, to police the parade. That worked out. The parade goes on. And afterwards, our clients at Aurora Pride get a bill that's double what they anticipated uh, so $48,000 instead of like $21,000 for the cost of policing the event. And all of this is caused by the fact that Aurora's permit, uh, uh, special events ordinance, allows police to decide whether or not they object and want to participate in a, in a protest message, which, as we know, it is as a rule, is not likely to be speech that is favored uh, by the powerful and others. And so, you know, we, we, are, we, we have been negotiating since last summer uh, with the city trying to get them to change this ordinance um, and take this off the books. They have refused to do so. And at long last, you know, we were really left with no option other than to go to court because um, there will be another pride parade this summer. Our clients would like to do this over again. And the only way uh, to ensure that they're able to um, is, is in not go through this havoc again uh, is to, to change this particular ordinance. So basically, Richard Irvin wanted to use this uh, to boost his campaign, to boost his profile. Look at me. Look at me. Um, what I'm doing. Otherwise, he basically was fixing something that wasn't broken, if I understand uh, correctly here. I, um, I, I, yeah, I think those things are true. I will I will mention just as a, a detail, a fact uh, that that in point of fact, uh, he sent a letter to the organizers of, with these objections over, you know, what he thought uh, were uh, mis- uh, mistreatment or maltreatment of the police officers, but somehow, you know, somehow that letter made its way to the media, uh, uh, you know, some period of time before uh, the organizers even got it. Um, mm. so I, you know, I think it's one of those things that kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder if this wasn't just a, uh, an effort at, at um, creating a political issue, a pro-police political issue as opposed to actually doing something in support of policing. Um, absolutely. What I don't understand is, okay, regardless of what he stirred up and what he did in an attempt to save a failing campaign, I don't understand the resistance to getting rid of it. Do you have any insight into that? I don't. Um, and it's, and it's very strange. Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that as, as, you know, just to put this out there, uh, so, so we're, I guess, on the same page. The, the problem is, is that this, this ordinance gives uh, people, in particular police in this instance, uh, a kind of a veto over what kind of parades or protests or other activity takes place in the, in the city of Aurora. That is unconstitutional. And so we don't think that the ordinance can withstand scrutiny. And we have tried, as I say, to work on several occasions with the city to make the changes. And they just simply have resisted thus far. Um, you know, we're hoping that the intervention of a federal court uh, will, will finally bring that change to pass. Well, you know, let's take this 
down the path of logic. What does that mean, Ed, that doctors should only treat people whose views align with theirs? If you are elected president, do you only get the protection from the Secret Service members who agree with your stances or who are members of your party? I mean, when you follow this to where it could lead, it's absurd. Nobody would ever expect a doctor to say, oh, I'm I'm sorry, sir, I don't treat African-Americans. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't treat Republicans. You know, it doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. And especially when you're talking about and, and invoking here, um, you know, the government authority to be able to let the event go on or not go on. I mean, I, I think of this personally, you know, I think of this as being analogous to what we're seeing, um, you know, across the state in terms of object objections uh, you know, for example, to drag shows and things of that nature, uh, where where literally, you know, the the suggestion is and the push is being made to governmental officials on a library board or a park district board or something of that nature, not to permit something to happen if they disagree or don't like the content of the program. That isn't what government should be doing. Uh, government really should be allowing programming to go forward for everyone and then let people pick and choose whether or not they want to participate. Yeah, I remember the famous anecdote when President Ronald Reagan was shot as he was being um, wheeled into the operating room. He supposedly looked at the doctor and he said something like, um, you know, any Republicans in here? Here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the doctor looked at him and said, "Mr. President, we are all Republicans today." <laughs> yes, and and you know that's what we want in that way. In, in any of those situations, is we just want neutrality. We don't want the thumb of government put on the scale against who can speak and who can't. And, and I should say that, you know, in this instance, after all of the, the mischief and havoc that went on in the few days before the parade went off, you know, the parade ultimately takes place. It is incredibly successful. Thousands of people in Aurora, you know, show up and, and, and you know, end up engaging in the activities in and around the parade in a, in a community-based way. And the idea that all of this could have been um, you know, uh, uh, canceled simply because somebody disagreed um, with the, you know, with with the way that one pe- one group was asked to participate, and and by the way, again, asked to participate while still being encouraged uh, to be part of the event, and so it's it's just a. You know, this isn't this isn't necessary. This isn't uh, appropriate. It is unconstitutional, and um, you know, we we look forward to the day that this ordinance is changed. I'm speaking with Ed Yanka from the ACLU of Illinois. We're talking about a really a bizarre a rule that now exists in Aurora, Illinois, that seems to indicate uh, that the police kind of get to pick and choose what events they will. Um, provide security for we're going to continue our discussion right after this stay on top of the latest news in and around chicago with joan esposito live local and progressive every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m on wcpt 820 because facts matter you are listening to wcpt 820 
Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Ed Yonka with the ACLU of Illinois. We've been talking about a lawsuit that the ACLU is bringing on behalf of Aurora Pride challenging an ordinance that, if I understand it correctly, allows police to kind of pick and choose uh, what events they will provide security for and be a part of and what events they won't. You wouldn't expect that from a police department. You wouldn't expect that in, you know, I mean, uh, garbage pickup. Oh, you know what, Ed? I don't like the look of your house. You can just make other arrangements to get your trash picked up. That's just not how the world works. I think that's I think that's really it at the core of it. And again, it, it is even more critical. Not, not that garbage pickup isn't critical, but it's even more critical in this, you know, in, in this space. Where what you're really talking about is the ability of a group to decide what their message is going to be during a protest, as opposed to allowing some governmental agency, a police officer, a police office. Uh, uh, or officers or others to decide what people should say, what they should think, and how they should behave. You don't see this kind of an ordinance being looked at by other communities in Illinois, do you? No, and that's been, I think, the other thing that has been, uh, you know, so um, perplexing about the intransigence in terms of, of altering the ordinance is this is just highly unusual uh, in, in this regard. You know, if you think about as, as, as probably folks, you know, certainly folks who've been involved in uh, protests and marches and activities uh, in the city of Chicago will, will note, um, you know, this just isn't an issue that one has in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, of police uh, preferencing or, 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 you know, allowing only one kind of speech to take place over the other. Um, it just, it just simply doesn't happen. So this is highly unusual. And I think that's the reason that, again, you know, it's at least a significant part of the reason at the end of the day, um, that, you know, in conjunction with Aurora Pride, uh, who's, who's planning future events, um, you know, that our staff just thought that we, we, we just had to move forward with a, with a challenge to this particular ordinance. We haven't had a chance to talk uh, since 2023 began. What else uh, is the ACLU of Illinois either involved in or thinking of becoming involved in? Well, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we were we were very pleased last week and we're working diligently in the legislature both to pass the measure that provides additional and enhanced protections uh, for patients and providers of abortion and gender affirming care uh, here in the state of Illinois. You know, we know that the, that care is under attack from other states and there's even attempts, as you know, to penalize or criminalize or put civil penalties on people who provide care or seek care that's perfectly legal in our state. And we were pleased to see, you know, that move forward and the governor sign that measure. Um, we got a really important and kind of underreported uh, measure uh, that also passed the legislature last week and is awaiting the governor's signature 
that will um, change what has been a very antiquated and overly restrictive name change law in Illinois. Mm-hmm. It people to change their name, uh, even if they've been uh, convicted of a felony, uh, without waiting an, a, a, a period of time. It's 10 years at a minimum that you have to wait. And for somebody that's a survivor of human trafficking or who is transgender and, and you know, wants identity documents that reflect their authentic selves, having, you know, being able to change one's name is really uh, critical. And so this law simply allows a judge to determine whether or not somebody's reason for seeking the change has merit. Uh, it allows for objections from state's attorneys if they think that someone is, is acting, not acting in good faith. And so that is, is, you know, is really important as well. And we're, um, you know, we're looking forward to that becoming law because the folks who've been affected by that have, have really, you know, had to struggle with, with all sorts of indignities. Uh, as a result of the law. So we're, we're really, you know, looking forward to that. Um, you know, we are, we are getting ready along with a, a group of other folks. Uh, we are getting ready to file an amicus brief uh, in support of the notion of ending cash bail in Illinois, this case that's gone up to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and I think we're taking a very close look at what the arguments are going to be uh, in these uh, in these uh, cases that are challenging the assault weapons ban, we did not take a position on the bill, um, but the argument somehow that the that the that the Constitution uh, is you know says that you cannot have any kind of regulation on firearms is something that that we don't think is consistent with what the court and the Supreme Court have actually said. Uh, and so, you know, that's something that we will be looking at and and I think exploring uh, as these cases move forward. And the last thing I'll say, and I promise I'll stop my laundry list, <laughs> but, but I think one of the things we're very, very much concerned about in that realm is this this what I think is really kind of a dangerous um, uh, language that we've seen coming out of some sheriffs across the state. That's suggesting that they're the ones who interpret what the Constitution says and what it means and not the courts uh, that that. Well, wasn't it right here in do wasn't it? I I don't want to misspeak. Was it DuPage where the sheriff said that they weren't going to enforce the assault weapons ban? That that is that is correct. It it was in DuPage and other counties. There have been a number of them around the state uh, that they took. had that, I was, you know, talking to a colleague this morning. There was a there was a sheriff from downstate who was on Chicago Tonight last night, um, and and just some of the things that you know he said, uh, um, you know, candidly were 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 suggesting an authority uh, for sheriffs that that you know I don't know that anybody really thinks exists, and so. I think that's something that, you know, we will be, um, you know, we'll be closely monitoring because because I think that idea uh, that that a law enforcement official uh, can determine not only how to enforce or when to enforce the laws, but that they actually have the power to suggest what is and what is not constitutional is really kind of an alarming um an alarming uh, 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 prospect. And, and of course, you know, what we see is, is that many 
of these sheriffs actually opposed the law, spoke out against it, and and the legislatures and legislator and policymakers simply disagreed with them. Um, and and the idea of of you know when you lose, you just simply say, well, we won't follow the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is I I think is not a road we necessarily want to go down, uh, either as a country or certainly as a state. So um, you know those are the things that we're we're sort of monitoring or or working on right now. Uh, but I suspect it won't be the that won't be the last thing we'll we'll have on our agenda this year. It, you know, it does seem, you know, we, of course, on this show talk about all of the great strides that have been taken in the state of Illinois, most of which you just touched on the idea of um, a woman's right to bodily autonomy. Another I talked to actually one of the lawmakers behind the uh, name change rule, and <clears throat> he also pointed out that it was important for victims of domestic violence, that sometimes they want to change their names so that they can better hide from the person who put them at risk. Yeah. It seemed yeah. and cash bail, assault weapons ban, all the things that we have been so cheerleading for here on the station, they're all going to go to court because uh, the conservatives, even in this very blue state, are not going to let this happen without a fight. But, you know, Joan, I I think to that extent, and if I can start the year off on a little optimism, um, remember that, number one, we have legislators and policymakers who have adopted these policies only after very cautious and careful consideration with lots of input and advice from lawyers. I, I think all of these things ultimately are going to survive. And the good news is, the good news is, is that this just demonstrates change is hard. And it's never going to be a one-stop shop where we, you know, pass a bill and we can move on and there won't be attempts to undermine it in the future. And it just shows that we have to be vigilant about those things. But that that it also will demonstrate, I think, that the fight is worth the outcome. Uh, I think when we look at the end of cash bail, I think when we look at the protections that have put in, been put in place for, you know, gender affirming care in this country or in this state, rather, that at the end of the day, having all these in place will make a difference in people's lives. And, and, and so it's worth the fight at every level and in every step and in every way to ensure that we get those protections in place. I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, we talk about Illinois in some respects being a model for other states for legislation. So might as well challenge it here. Let it let it go through the court system. Let it get affirmed that it is constitutional, that it is legal. And maybe that'll make it just a little bit easier for some of these measures to get adopted in other states. Maybe the fight against it will be just a little bit less. How's that for a glass half full? I, 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 listen, I, and you know what? It's not just it's not just puffery either. I will tell you, I cannot tell you the number of times in the last couple of years I've had conversations with colleagues from states across the country which aren't so affirming and aren't so uh, uh, progressive who say every time you guys do this, it gives us a map for where we want to be in the future. We ought to provide that for other states. Excellent. 
Mr. Yonka, it is a pleasure to have you on board. Let's not wait so long before we do it again. What do you say? I, I am. I, you know that I will always respond to your emails <laughs> or your calls, no matter what time of day or night. You're the only person who doesn't sleep like I don't sleep. <laughs> you know, I can be shooting off texts and emails at two, three, four in the morning, and generally people know to ignore me till at least a decent hour. <laughs> but Ed Yonka I, responds. I, no, I respond. I, it just, you know. I, uh, Listen, I'm a farm kid. I don't need much sleep. And, uh, you know, on top of on top of all of that, um, you know, there's just so much work to do. Who needs sleep? Yeah, yeah really. Just Thank you, Ed. Yvonne, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There you go. Ed <laughs> Yonka, ACLU of Illinois, fighting the good fight. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more right after this. The Rick Smith Show, live weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. Um, we just heard the promo for his show. I want you to know Rick Smith is going to join me tomorrow. He's going to be uh, my guest in the 4 o'clock hour to talk about all of the... Uh, News events of the week. Now, though, I am joined by Professor Suzanne Chad. She's with North Central College in Naperville. Her one of her areas of expertise is women and American politics. And boy, oh boy, there has never been, a, I don't think, a better time to focus on women in American politics. Uh, Professor Chad, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. You know, um, I uh, was very skeptical when the midterm elections were approaching because I kept hearing people. I kept reading and, and in mainstream media, which I thought knew better. Oh, well, you know, well, you know, the Dobbs decision. <laughs> That was last June. You know, women aren't still riled up politically about that. That's that's not going to enter into the midterm elections. And I don't know, other than just opinion, what anybody was basing that on. I didn't see any. Um, I mean, most of the surveys that I saw that said, you know, what are the issues of importance? You know, that was that was usually in the top three. Um mm-hmm. Tell me what you saw, what you study politics. When the Dobbs decision came down, what changes did that make in the voters who were women and of all colors, all ethnicities, all anything? What did you see the result of Dobbs being? Yeah, I mean, Joan, to your point, there was all this conversation about whether whether or if the, the overturning of Roe would have an effect on on the uh, on turnout for women, generally speaking, and, and for whom they would vote. And so, you know, we know that the gender gap exists and women overwhelmingly vote Democratic to begin with. And so when we were thinking about how would the Dobbs decision affect turnout, it wasn't about 
whether women would vote for Democrats or Republicans. It was whether or not women would come out more than usual in a midterm to vote for Democrats because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And we saw this, you know, if we look at the intersections of women when they uh, turning out in the midterms is that um, the intersections of race, the intersections of education, of region all matter when we look at who turns out. And there was so much focus on white suburban college educated women. That was actually going to be I want you to talk about that. That was going to be my follow up question, because I was reading all these things. Oh, this election, every election, that election, this election over here, they're all going to be determined by college-educated white suburban women. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, not really, right? That's <laughs> in, a lot of ways a fal- in a lot of ways a false narrative and continues to, um, a couple of ways this is problematic, one of which is to say that the outcome of an election rests solely on a very specific group of people, uh, which is never the case. But the other is to presume that there's something monolithic about those women. So, yes, even if you are a white, college-educated suburban woman, that does, that presumes that you are the same kind of woman who cares about the same kind of things. And that is not necessarily the case. Um, I think a lot of this rests on this over overarching narrative about the suburbs as a bellwether for all elections. Whoever wins the suburbs wins elections and how that had gone back and forth over time between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans thought they were gaining some ground after they lost it in 2018. And there was concern that overturning of Roe would continue that trend. And it did continue that trend, although I don't know if it's only about Roe. But I, I, because we can't say for certainty it had a, 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 an independent effect, but we can say with some certainty that that it had an effect along with other with other factors. When you study women, particularly in the political realm, what kinds of categories do you look at? I mean, I see all the polling, you know, and it's like uh, it's the like young people or it's white suburban women. Do you what do you study? Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, looking at all of that is is critically important to understand the the um, not just behavior of female voters, but what motivates female voters. We have to look at all of those intersections now. Specifically, where my research intersects—that word again—is with young people. So, a lot of my research focuses on how do we engage and motivate young people to vote. You and I spoke about this last time, uh, last time I was on the show, and and so I've spent a lot of time looking at young women and young women of color, young women who are first gen, uh, uh, first generation college students. Um, and, and what we know specifically for young women of color in the midterm election is in the biggest swing states where Republicans were expected to pick up seats in the statewide level and Democrats either outperformed or at least overperformed that mostly that was because of young women of color coming out to the polls. Uh, and we had not seen, we had seen this this movement in previous elections, but not in the way that we had seen it in 2022. And so it gives us some hope that young women of color who are often cast out of civic, uh, or feeling as though they are cast out of these, these systems, these political systems, are feeling as though there is a place for them there. And I hope we continue to foster that. Uh, absolutely. Talk, talk to me more about young voters. Uh, the other trope, and I, I know that's a literary word, but it seems to apply to elections. The other thing is, you know, black women will save us no matter what. Black mm-hmm. women, black women will save us. There will, that's the demographic that will save us. What do you think when you hear people saying things like that? Do you just roll your eyes or is, is it based in some kind of truth? I mean, honestly, 
joke. It's both. I roll my eyes because it's a it's a continued narrative that the 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 Democratic Party's success rests on black women and that black women, if they don't come out, will let the party down in a way that has catastrophic results. That's a lot of pressure on a group of women who are still quite often oppressed, if not almost always oppressed by the party for which they vote. And so it's frustrating that a group of women who have who democracy in general has rested on their shoulders for centuries, that this party still has such high expectations that, you know, they will come out for them no matter what. Not a lot of of um, of mobilization effort is required. But then also when Democrats don't do as well in elections, they blame them as opposed to looking at the larger picture to look at college educated suburban white women, to look at young voters, to look at white men, quite honestly, and look at the, what what's going on in the party rather than this very narrow way of looking at one group of women that 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 have, has shouldered so much of the responsibility because they have had to, yet at the same time been told that they're not doing enough, which is the plight of most women in America, but particularly women of color in America. It's quite frustrating. Well, and the, and the corollary to that, black women will save us, is always after the election, oh, look, black women saved us again, and still they're not getting the attention, and we're not passing laws that benefit them. Oh, look, you know, they've, they've helped us out yet again, and yet again we are failing them. I don't think that's as true as, as people would like to believe either. Yeah, you know, you know that's a good point, is that, the, that there are... There are things that keep any party that's in control, but particularly the Democratic Party. There, there are institutional and structural factors at play that keep the party from being as progressive, progressive as it might want. And when we look at President Biden as a great example, if he ran on as, as, as excuse me, on as progressive of a platform as we have seen a Democrat run and made promises that, quite honestly, we knew he couldn't keep because of the division in Congress, right? And so even when things were introduced that were specifically targeted at minoritized communities and black women, they had no chance of passing through the divided Congress. Uh, and I wish that, that that was discussed a little bit more in ways that the voters could understand it and the citizens could understand it. But even still, no result is no result. Right. It doesn't matter if the intent was there, if there's no if there's no impact on the ground for people's lives. And and this is where elections have consequences. The larger the margin of the majority, the easier it's going to be for for either party to pass things. And that's just not the reality of our electoral outcomes. I am talking with uh, Professor Suzanne Chad. She is with North Central College in Naperville. She has an expertise in women and American politics, gender and race we are going to continue our discussion right after our break. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor Suzanne Chad. She's with North Central College in Naperville. Her expertise is women in American politics, gender and race. You know, I've asked you, um, Suzanne, a lot of questions, but I'd like to know, based on everything that you've studied recently, what is it that I should know? What is it that my audience should know? 
Oh, my goodness. I love that question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that has been important for me in looking in the past couple of years, and this is something that, that isn't unique to what I look at. In fact, there's a lot of research, but looking at it a little bit more deeply is the impact of, of Donald Trump's presidency on women's political ambition. So there's a lot of research on why women don't have the same political ambition as men. It's not that women don't win at the same rate. It's that they don't run at the same rate. And while that that proportion is still off considerably, the election outcomes in statewide races um, since 2016 suggest that women's political ambition is increasing and young women's political ambition is increasing and more diverse women, uh, young women's political ambition is increasing. And what now we've got a couple of election cycles since the 2016 election. And what we've seen from this Congress that just got sworn in this month is that we have, um, you know, I think it, the, the percentage was um, was about half or maybe a little less than half of the women who are serving now uh, in this Congress, uh, the new women that are serving now, won their first race after 2016 at the statewide level. So we're seeing movement. And this is something that I want to continue to track and something that we should be keeping our eyes on is really the impact of this rejection of the of Donald Trump's presidency and how it affected women's political ambition. I don't know if, if this is the kind of thing that you can quantify, but I know that for women of my generation, and there were women of my generation certainly that started running for office, but there was always the question, well, you know, who's going to take care of your kids? And there was this implication that somehow, you know, regardless of whether or not you could be a nurse or a doctor, but in political life, there was this feeling that somehow you were a bad mother. Has that dissipated? Yeah. <laughs> it has not. <laughs> it really has not. I would. I know, Joan, I'd like to say that we've progressed past, you know, white patriarchal capitalism, but those systems are, are, are so very, very much at play. And I, I think what's, what's particularly troubling about this is even though this generation of women, you know, the, the youngest generation or Gen Z generation of women that are now, uh, you know, getting old enough to run for office is that they, they're more aware of how they are oppressed by systems. And so the two ways that they have reacted is to reject completely political life, because why would I want to enter that? Or really fight hard against it. And my, my hope, and, and especially with teaching young women um, and, and even and, and young men and, and anyone who, you know, on the, on the gender identity spectrum in these classes is that they're mad. They're mad that these systems exist. They're mad that women are held to different standards. And to your point, how can you, you know, pass laws and bake bread, right? How can you drive mm -hmm. your kids to school and also sit at a committee meeting? They're mad about that. And they want to break apart these systems. Um, but the people that are serving, and to be quite honest, the people that are voting at the highest rate aren't as mad about those systems yet. Uh, and so I w I'm not suggesting it hasn't gotten better, but I, I wouldn't want to lead us to believe that it's, it's where it needs to be. So um, I've seen, because I get the demographic breakdowns, the if you're 55 or older, oftentimes 65 or older, that demographic votes in very large numbers. They vote consistently, which is why I always think it's crazy when somebody goes after Social Security. But that's an issue for another time. <laughs> right. um, but right. you're you're absolutely right. It It is older people. It is it is kind of my generation and the ones mm -hmm. who, well, I certainly don't feel that way. You know, uh, there are a lot of people who are like, you know, 
um, you know, the best thing you could do is just raise your family and, and, you know, how could you, how could you, you know, let, you know, a nanny, you know, take care of your kids during the day and that kind of thing. Cause, you know, I, I am of that demographic, but there were many in my generation, Suzanne, we were mad too. We just didn't seem right. to get much done about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the second place feminist movement was critical in introducing us to, it's talking about these systems. And while it wasn't intersectional at first, third wave feminism has stepped in to get us to think about this more broadly. And and to, and you are absolutely right, Joan, that, that you were mad and you were trying to figure out how to get things done and navigate systems that you weren't welcomed in. And I think one of the differences is while those systems are still not as welcoming, there are more women on the inside of the system trying to disrupt from the inside when very few women were in those systems back when we're talking in the 60s and 70s and even in the early 80s. And so the more women who are in the system, the harder it is to deny the political system and in these elected offices, the harder it is to deny that there's a place for them there and that we should be thinking about ways to make it more encouraging for women to be in them. Do you believe uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was right when she was asked how many women should be on the Supreme Court, how many seats should be held by women? And she said all of them. She said, yes, when there were nine. And, and, you know, that quote always sticks with me. She's one of my personal heroes, as for a lot of women she was. But it sticks with me because it could be taken two ways, one of which is, oh, well, it's reverse sexism because she doesn't think men should serve on the court, which, of course, is not what she meant. It's that until we don't question why there are women in those seats, Right. That there should be nine because we shouldn't wonder why there are nine women since we don't wonder why there were nine men for so long. And and we know that when women have seats at the table and when their voices are valued, that we are a more equitable society, that we are we are closer to the, the we get closer to delivering on the promise that we were sold. Right. And um, and not just women, but all kinds of women from all kinds of places. That's when we get to where we need to be. Yeah. Until it's not a novelty, until it is not something worth remarking on. And, mm-hmm. you know, do you think this is this is getting into a little bit of silly territory here? But, you know, it was a big news story about how Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert got into a fight in the ladies room and they were screaming at each other. Um, is that kind of thing setting us back <laughs> oh, I, hear it. I can re- yeah, I can I remember that. a time when it was felt that because we had periods we weren't suitable yeah. for positions where big just like CEO positions or government positions because God knows you know where she is in her cycle she'll be too emotional oh absolutely hundred uh, percent and even when Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2016 there was a, an article that ran that said electing a postmenopausal woman is the safest bet. Because at least she won't be getting her period anymore. Yeah. So you you can't you, you're either you either are of childbearing years and you're criticized for either not having children or having children and having a job or you're post childbearing years. And then, you know, it's, it's a discussion about, you know, where you are with with your body and with with aging. And so, yeah, it, it, it's bad all around. But um, but I think to your point about about, you know, what might be, what might be perceived as like a cat fight in the bathroom. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when Kevin McCarthy was trying to become the speaker and in that last round of voting, when one member physically had to be restrained for going after Matt Gates, um, there wasn't a discussion about too much testosterone in the room. 
right? Yeah. But if two women get into a, a what per, is perceived to be a fight, even if they just have an elevated voice level, there's too much estrogen and emotion in the room. And so it, you either show too much emotion or not enough. You're either too passionate <laughs> or not enough. You're either too feminine or not <clears throat> enough, right? Yeah. Um, the double, that double bind is real. And particularly for women with minoritized identities, that double bind is really, really tricky. Um, we, you know, wa- watching, watching um, behaviors and language. And so whether you fight or you don't, you're still criticized. So, you know, is it improving? Is it improving? Can you look at the studies you started at with the beginning of your career and where you are now? And you can right. say, yes, damn it, it's getting better. <laughs> I guess I can. I think there are ways that we we can say that it is better. And there are some sort of benchmarks we hit, although noting, as I'm, as I'm sure you would the same, that it's a journey, right? There's no destination where we say we've hit. We've hit nine Supreme Court justices who are women and we've we've hit gender equity. Right. Um, but yes, more women are running and yes, more women are winning and yes, more diverse women are running and winning and diverse in all of the ways, whether we're talking about race, we're talking about education, we're talking about marital status sexuality. We have more young mothers in Congress than ever before. And so, yes, I can say that it's getting better because more women are are elected and more women want to run. The one thing I will say, though, is it doesn't mean it's easier once they're there. And I think what where we focus our attention is not just on the wanting to run and the running, but it's on the gendered and race institutions in which they serve and trying to find ways to help them navigate the systems. And I shouldn't say that they have to have the help. The system should not be that difficult for them. But how do we make it? What do we do to make it so that they can navigate it a little more easily? Well, any advice you'd like to pass along on those? How do we how do we make it easier for those things to be navigated? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And there's some logistical things I like to bring up that's so silly. It's like there, there wasn't a women's bathroom off the Senate floor until the last decade, right? There weren't nursing rooms for mothers until the last couple of years. There's some literal logistical things in the building that could help. But other than that, it really is about finding allies and advocates in all of the places that are willing to stick up for you. And so it is not on the minoritized person to make the system easier. It's on those who have the loudest voices to make the system easier and to say that it's unjust. And I'd like to see more of that in these in, in these institutions is the allies and advocates step, you, up and standing up and saying that this isn't right. You and me both. And um, your voice is welcome on this radio station any time. OK. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. I always enjoy our conversation. Me too. Professor Susan Chad is with North Central College in Naperville. We are going to take a break and we're going to come back with our monthly segment that we do on media. Uh, Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob are going to be here at uh, four o'clock. We're going to have David Lehman as a special guest because we're going to talk about moderating debates, something he's ex- an expert on. We'll uh, take a break and get started right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. Need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Once a month, I am joined by former WGN-TV News Director Jennifer Schulze and former Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob, and we get together and we talk about media. Um, if you would like to join our conversation, please feel free. Um, 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. You can comment on how media are working either locally, statewide, nationally. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Jennifer. How are you both? Hi. Doing great. Yeah, me too. All good. <laughs> um, I do. We do, as, as I've said to you before, you know, before we do this segment, Mark and Jennifer, you know, bounce a bunch of ideas back and forth with me about what should we talk about. And there's always like we could do an entire week's worth of programs, uh, an entire month's worth of podcasts over all the things that we'd like uh, to talk about. But something in our exchange this week really caught my eye because, you know, who doesn't who doesn't like a good bit of gossip? And um, one of the one of the little things that was exchanged was Mark's 12 dirty little secrets about journalism. Um, Mr. Jacob, would you care to expound upon some of those dirty little secrets? Well, let's see. I, I, I did this, I think it was last week. Um, and it was it was just me thinking for a long time about kind of things about journalism that that people don't really understand and uh and that uh and that they ought to and the things that kind of that i've learned over the years you know and 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 some of them i think will you know make people you know into better news consumers i hope at least and um i'm just gonna find my list here on, on, on well the- let me start you off with one uh number right. one when a reporter writes a warm human interest story about a politician, it's often an attempt to soften up the politician to get a better story later. Stories that make politicians look good are known in the business as beat sweeteners. Yeah. <laughs> that phrase does not exist in television that I know of, Jennifer. Does have you? Are you familiar with that, or is that just a print no. thing? No, but we know what it means. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, it means working the source, you know, getting them, getting cozy with them so they'll give you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it means writing a story that's not very important, but that they might want you to write. And then down right. the down the road, maybe they'll kick you something else. And and I'm not, you know, some of these are, right, and some of these three little secrets are not, you know, necessarily, you know, evil. They're just things that, they're just parts of the business that I think people ought to know and don't know sometimes when they are consuming news rather than producing it. You know, for example, you know, that's that's why when you see get some sort of warm and fuzzy story about a politician, you might want to consider whether it's just a beat sweetener and you shouldn't take it very seriously. I also, like, another one was, you know, sometimes an anonymous source in the news story is the main person the story is about. Now, and this is this is important because, you know, when you write a story about somebody and, and, and uh, but and you won't, they won't talk, you can't get them to talk on the record. Sometimes they'll talk off the record. Sometimes they'll tell you various things, and they will, in effect, become an anonymous source in the story about them. Now, the tricky thing about that, and, and you know, journalists get around it sometimes, is that 
you can't say in the story, you know, uh, Joe Smith declined to comment because he didn't because he, he uh-huh. popped off the record. <clears throat> so you can you can get be tricky and say Joe uh, Joe Smith's office declined comment or something like that, and still that protects you to be able to use him as a source or an aide to uh, John Smith, you know, declined comment or something like that. I mean, so there's there are like tricky things. I mean, you, know, you ought, people ought to realize that when there's an anonymous source in a story, that it might be the person the story's about. And I don't, I'm sure that they don't think that. Now, that, and the, number three was was use uh, use of the phrase "observers say" because you know you see that occasion. Well, observers say that this bill is just going to have a hard time passing, or something like that. Observers can be anyone, and so mm-hmm. it should not be taken seriously. It could be you know the, you know a couple of fellow reporters down at the bar. It could be mm-hmm. you know, an aide to a congressman. It could be you know, it could be your barber. It could be anyone. So so observers say doesn't really mean much. It's just a way to get something in a story that you actually have not reported. Uh, one of my favorite things. This one? Oh, go, oh, sure. Sorry. Go ahead. I just want to say, um, as we all noticed in the last six years, uh, Donald Trump took that observer say phrase and turned it in, twisted it just a little bit to people <laughs> are saying, and used it as right. a way to do the same thing, right? Exactly. Also, exactly. People are saying, well, you know, Mr. People Trump. And, and in fact, you know, no one was saying except him. But right. so, and what I've noticed since then, I've actually noticed more of that. I don't know about you guys, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that that's become like it's exploded. So the media has done it for years, right? Observers say, or people are right. thinking, but Trump right. has been saying people are oh. saying for six totally years, right. and it's sort of in. It's it's beyond the ether. It's in every day, and and people just need to know it's BS. Right. It's him saying what he thinks, but pretending that right. he's quoting the right. giant mass of right. people who have been talking about it the whole time, yeah. which is baloney. And there's a corollary. Kills me. People. Go ahead, Jennifer. Donald Trump. People quoting. So it takes on a life of its own. Well, people. Oh, he gives it gives it credibility. Yeah. Yes, and you'll see it. You'll see it. You would see it grow from him. People are saying, and then you'll hear the media report. Well, Trump says people are saying, <laughs> you know, I mean, it just goes and grows and grows and grows and becomes this just ball of nonsense. Right. I think that there's a, a cousin to that. And that's where and I've, I must admit, I've, I've used this myself when you're doing an interview with somebody who you really don't want to alienate. But you there's a really tough question you have to ask. Um, and then you can attribute that tough question to anybody else who has commented on that tough question. Well, you know, um, in the Washington Post, this columnist, you know, accused you of lying and stealing. You know, what do you have to say? As opposed to me right. saying, you have been accused of lying and stealing. Right. What do you have oh, to yeah. say? That's like, you know, I want to ask you this tough question, but don't be mad at me. Don't cut me off in the future. That's why it's really always a good idea when someone says, well, people are saying, and just interrupt them and say, name one, who, tell us yeah. who said it, when, you know, mm-hmm. people need to where did you read it? Right. The fuzziness always works on people who are trying to spin things that aren't true. Do you, do you want me to go through more of these or what do you, what do you want yeah. to do? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's the fourth one was, it, it was when a public figure makes an accusation against another public figure, but offers no evidence, responsible journalists hesitate to repeat it. But if they can get the accused to deny it, they feel comfortable enough to report it, even if they have no new evidence. 
And and this I've seen this happen a number of times where it's even like I've heard people say, well, maybe we can get a denial out of this. In other words, what I'm, what I'm saying is if politician A says something scurrilous against politician B, but doesn't offer any evidence that's true, just says it. And, uh, you know, I've been in these situations and we say, well, we're not going to publish that. There's nothing to it. We, he hasn't shown anything, so we're not going to publish it. But, you know, it starts getting into the ether and, you know, you know how there's this mentality in news media, which is it's out there, you know, oh, it's out there. So they yeah. you're right about it. And so when it's out there, sometimes journalists will, will say, well, let's see if we can get the accused politician, politician B, to, to deny it because the politician uh, B denies it, then we can lead our story with his denial. And even if right, it gives them the cover. Is, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Even if, even if the story cover, and it's terrible. Yeah, so you've seen it. Jennifer, you've seen that. It's a version of both sides, but it's a. I think it's worse than that because it's like you said. There's this thing in the that they've heard, but they're too. A, they haven't gotten another source, right? So maybe if they had multiple sources on it, then they could go with it, but they haven't. So instead of continuing to work the story, right, and get more sources on that original claim. They're like, oh, if I just get so-and-so to say, no, that didn't happen, I'm good. I'm done. Well, you know, it, it, there's two things going on in the kind of modern journalism. One, you know, one is, the, is that there's this impulse that, you know, it's, uh, it's the, as far as competition in modern journalism. So there's, there, it makes some people, you know, work hard and get stories they otherwise wouldn't get. But it also has this uh, tendency to make people want to match each other's stories and fear of missing out. Right. So you feel like, Oh, you missed it. If somebody else reports something else, even if the something else that they reported was BS and, you know, and, and and an editor, like I was at the, you know, trip in the sun times, especially, you know, especially the trip where I was kind of assigning stories sometimes, you know, my, my superiors would say, Hey, what's the deal with that story? I see, saw that in the other paper. You know, and I try to, sometimes I try to tell them, I'd say, you know, we think it's full up. It's BS. We think it's not true. And and that wouldn't, uh, you know, sometimes that would satisfy and sometimes not. But it creates this pressure to just yeah. because it's out there to, mm-hmm. you know, to just to do it. Yep. And um, so number five was, when, and this is just kind of a headline trick. You know, when news outlets write inside headlines, such as inside Carrie Lake's war room, it often means they didn't find a new fact worthy of a headline. So they teased to, uh, to the story instead and didn't say any fact. They just kind of teased it. And an inside headline is a red flag that the reporting was disappointing because if they found an amazing new fact, they would have led with that. Instead, they <laughs> used the kind of inside of the war room. In other words, that it just, we're going to bring you a bunch of information, but nothing really to catch your eye. But, you know, I spent all day gathering it. So by God, you're going to read it or listen right. to it. But you're going to make it make it seem as if somebody like crawled in the back window and, you know, listened to <laughs> private conversations or something. So whenever you see inside in a headline, you know, uh, you know, be skeptical. Yeah. Uh, the, the other one, another one was, and just tell me whenever you need to, uh, when news organizations make it a politician or a party look bad, it often jumps at the chance to overplay anything that makes the other side look bad so the news organization appears unbiased. Republicans benefit from this since they're more corrupt. I mean, right now they're more corrupt. Maybe they weren't 30, 40 years ago, but they certainly are now. And so they benefit from this. And you see it all the time. You're seeing that now with the Joe Biden stuff, I think. And this kind of impulse that, oh, well, we really hit the other side a lot. So as soon as, if, you know, if, if some Democrat jaywalks, that's suddenly big news. 
Yeah. You know, there's compensation in order to appear fair. Yeah. Do we do have to we one? do have to take a break at this point. Plus, we have some callers that want who want to join our okay. conversation. Uh, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I are going to be right back after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm having a discussion about the media with uh, former WGN Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze and former Chicago Tribune and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob. We have opened up the phone lines uh, Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? In, in a room full of imposters, which is a Republican House, the number, well, he's not the number one imposter. There's more imposters there than you could, you could find in a play in somewhere in Lithuania. Anyway, the, the most egregious thing of this DeSantis character, I guess he took 3000 from a poor dog that had cancer. He went on... You know, GoFundMe page, a guy's living under the bridge, and it says guard dog, and he stands to three grand. Now, that's really about as low as anybody could say. When you steal three grand from a dog. And he, 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 but he, yeah. he, fits the, he fits the bill perfectly there. I mean, you've got a pastor after a pastor after a pastor. They're, they have no, they're not going to for any public good. They're just there to. You know, toot their own heart. Anyway, thanks, Jonah. Thank you for your audience. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, Long Island, um, oh, the, I can't remember what the name of the Long Island paper was that um, said, you know, we're not going to endorse this candidate because we think he's a fraud. And uh, sadly, nobody else picked it up. Apparently now the New York Times has reported, though, that there were officials in the Republican Party who did their research and they knew George Santos wasn't what he seemed, but uh, they figured he had a good shot at winning. So they pretty much kept their collective heads down. And 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 there you have it. This is why we need a strong media. Um, we're talking with Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob. Uh, Mark's been running us through some of his little secrets of journalism. And one of the things that he just taught me about was something called a beat sweetener. Jennifer uh, found an example of this. Jennifer, talk about this thing you just sent me. Um, ben Smith, who used to be at the New York Times um, and before that but at BuzzFeed and now has something called Semaphore, um, is tweeting today um, from Davos and saying that the former editor of the New York Times, Jill Abramson, um, wrote to him and said she wanted to ban reporters from covering Davos. Because now, excuse my language, but she described it as a corrupt circle jerk. She said that reporters go to this thing, pay a jillion, their companies pay a jillion dollars to send them there to interview all the titans of business. And they do it to flatter them to then get them to agree to um, being interviewed for articles. But then here's the thing that she says they're really after. They want these CEOs to speak at the high-dollar conferences that these various media entities put on. And so there's a whole another level to the beat sweetener. It's, you know, it's I'm going to 
cozy up to you here in, you know, across the pond and um, write nice things about you in the New York Times or wherever and do that because I know if I flatter you, you are more likely to say yes to headlining um, something that my business wow. is doing, you know, on down the line. And for Jill Abramson, I think, to come out and say that, um, I thought that was really interesting because she clearly has been behind the scenes when a lot of this stuff has been happening. So, you know, I, I just thought that was uh, worth pointing out. And oh, yeah. contrast that with an email that I just sent to the trash file about a half an hour ago that came in uh, about 45 minutes ago. Politico, interview in Davos, tune in with our uh, our Politico CEO and our Brussels correspondent are going to be interviewing, you know, famous people at Davos. Tune in, hashtag Politico Davos. Right. Well, this is this is uh, the thing that Jennifer was just talking about is something that is not not enough attention has gotten to because news organizations, especially looking for new revenue sources in you know, last few years, especially pre-COVID, were you know, doing a lot of events where they would have you know, famous people, mayors, governors, uh, you know, and just famous people. And they would charge admission for a bunch of readers to come and, you know, have them talk. So, I mean, it's an inherent conflict of interest because. A news organization is covering a mayor, but then asking the mayor to show up at an event that the news organization's making money from. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's, it's clearly a, it's it's an utter conflict of interest, and uh, to me, a violation of journalism ethics. And 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 there's not enough attention has been paid to it. So I, I give her a lot of credit, um, the former New York Times editor, for pointing that out. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hello, Steve. You're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. Yes, I want to make a couple of points and to expand on the last one you were discussing. You know, a lot of people in the realm of journalism, you know, it's not terribly high paying. And, you know, you write something positive about somebody who might be interested in being a press secretary down the road or working in the PR department at Google or Apple or somewhere and making a lot more money than you're currently making. So, that's another sort of incentive to do some of this stuff. Uh, but beyond that, I wanted to say kudos for covering this. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people know that doctors don't say bad things about their profession and their colleagues. Lawyers don't do it. And and very rarely do you see journalists discussing this sort of thing. You know, what, during COVID, I remember watching reruns of Lou Grant. And that was such an underrated TV series that I that I, I don't think people are familiar enough with. They tried to cover a lot of this stuff, and they they, they were highly acclaimed for it. You know about what what goes on in terms of how news gets made and how it gets covered, what gets covered, what doesn't get covered, and all of these things. And it's it's important for people to know that you know journalism is just as flawed as anything else, and and all of those things need to be talked about in order for us to to be in a functional democracy because it's an essential leg in that democracy. Yeah, here, here. I mean, people people need to view journalism as a product in the same way that you know they view tires and uh, you know and and stakes. They need to like uh, as, you know, assess <laughs> the value of it. They need to understand what's good and what's bad. They need to they need to be you know sophisticated consumers. And that's I guess that's the reason for that Twitter thread of mine um, uh, last week was just to to just make people think a little bit more and not just believe everything they read. It's it's kind of important. Do you have any more little secrets that we need uh, yeah. to 
Go ahead. Well, I did want to mention, you know, uh, I, the overuse of unnamed sources is subject to severe abuse. And we could talk about this forever, really, because mm-hmm. it's, it's one, of the, one of the main problems in in journalism today is use of uh, uh, anonymous sources or abuse of it. And I just pointed out, and I'm not going to say what publication or who or anything like that. I've gone as far as I'm going to, as far as being specific, but I once caught a reporter trying to describe the same source in three different ways. Which, if, if the story had run that way, it would have made the reader think that there were three different sources, but there are really only one source. Mm-hmm. The source was trying to c- cover uh, his or her tracks by t- different comments on being described differently for different comments. But it had the net result of making people think that the reporter had three sources when the reporter had one. It's interesting that you say that, Mark, because recently I've seen where um, reporters will say, you know, we contacted, you know, we we heard from six different staffers, all of whom uh, wanted anonymity because they weren't authorized to speak about this. But I've actually seen reporters now giving a number you know, we may not tell you who they are, but we talk to a dozen right. people or we right. talk to three right. different people who had firsthand familiarity with this. Right. They're, they're, so I think people are getting better about that. Yeah, but you're taking, still taking that on faith. But yeah, I, I do think that's better, but, but you still have to believe them and you have to believe how they're characterizing their sources, too. And what Absolutely. A source, who's, a source who's close to the situation or knows. It's, you know, it would, it's really best to try to get people on the record, you know? I mean, I, I, I was tweeted the other day. I was like, you know, I just want, you know, you see all these elaborate explanations for anonymous sources in the Washington Post and New York Times where they say, uh, who declined to be identified because they were not authorized to speak or because, because of the sensitivity of the matter, or they give some explanation for why they're anonymous. And I, I said that just once I'd like them to say who, who we're giving out, who we're not identifying because we didn't bother to ask them to go on the record. And who cares about that anyway? You know, it's <laughs> because because un, unfortunately, that's part of what's going on. It's, it's to some people. It's a game that, you know, I, just as um, because I like to talk more about politics now than I ever did when I was in journalism. You know, people have called me and interviewed me and I, I was. Some uh, journalism student called me the other day, and, and the first thing he said was, uh, you can go off the record if you want to. And I said, stop. I said, whoa. Mm-hmm. Realize, don't ever – I said – I gave him a little journalism lesson. I said, don't ever offer to go off the record until somebody demands it. Don't ever – make that the last ref, last place you go. Don't – I mean, you, you want them to be on the record. And that's the thing. If we could – if journalists would try harder and harder and harder to get people on the record, uh, news stories would be more credible. I've had that happen uh, as well. And, again, it usually is with student journalists who haven't um, who haven't learned this any any other way that that's not something you know you you don't ever bring it up and and um, and frankly if somebody does bring it up I've sometimes pushed back you know and I'll try mm-hmm. to argue with them you know what's this is what you have to say is going to have a lot less impact if we do it that way you know and try to push back a little bit. Well, there's also another thing that's a real abuse, which is what I call anonymous opinion. Where an anonymous person is not relaying any supposed fact, but is just relaying an opinion like, well, that's the stupidest politician I've ever seen in my life. Why would you quote somebody as doing anonymous opinion? I mean, do you really going to let people like throw pot shots from the bushes? I mean, it, 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 that's just cheap. And, and uh, jur- journalists should not be part of that. So, so I, we would, when I was uh, Metro editor at the Trib, 
we would never allow uh, anonymous opinion. I mean, we didn't, you don't, if you go off the record, it may, should be a real exception and it should be a fact that somebody's relaying to you that you can't get otherwise. It should mm-hmm. not be them just trying to throw a pot shot at an opponent. I think we need a reset on anonymous sources. I think it's like out of control. I think it is becoming a norm where it used to be an exception. And I think particularly in political reporting, it is so prevalent. I just have to wonder, you know, what reporters are thinking about how they're doing their jobs and what their editors are thinking, because it really was not this common, even maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't this common. Now you cannot read an article in a major media outlet without at least one anonymous source. And it's a, it's a fascinating development to me and, and not a positive one. No. And, and don't you think it kind of puts the reporter and the, and the source on the same side of the game? And they're playing the game together against the uh, the consumer. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and then it kind of swirls all back to people are saying beet sweeteners and all of this, and how they're all cozy on the same side of something. You know, you don't need to be adversaries. It's not hand to hand combat, but you're not on the same side when you're, you're, especially when you're reporting politics. You have mm-hmm. to be you know, standing back from that, not going out for drinks with the person the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, um, we're going to take a break for news. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by longtime uh, anchorman uh, David Lehman. Part of why I wanted David to join our conversation. This is the time when we have all the mayoral debates, the mayoral forums, the aldermanic forums out in the neighborhoods. Uh, David has a lot of expertise uh, he's been a news manager as well as a news anchor and reporter. He's got a lot of expertise in planning these things and pulling them off. And since it is that season in Chicago and will be till the end of February, I thought that would be an interesting aspect to our discussion about journalism today. So we're all going to take a quick break for news and be back with much more after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. We could talk about how complicated other banks make it to redeem credit card rewards. Or we could talk about how with Discover, you can redeem your rewards for cash in any amount at any time. Talk about amazing. Learn more at discover.com slash redeem rewards. Terms apply. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Once a month, a former TV news director, Jennifer Schulze, former 
uh, sometimes Trib editor Mark Jacob and I get together to talk about media. Oftentimes we invite a former media professional to join us for a portion of our conversation. Today I'm happy to welcome back uh, my good friend David Lehman. He has been an anchor man pretty much everywhere in the entire United States. He's also been a news director. Uh, he now contributes to a political commentary show on um, national um, uh, public television in Rhode Island. David, welcome to our conversation. I'd like to interview Je- or introduce you to Jennifer and Mark. Hey, Jennifer, Mark, and Joan. Dave Lehman here. Good to uh, meet with you, and uh, even if it's uh, by phone. <laughs> now, we uh, here at WCPT are um, holding a mayoral forum on Thursday, January 26th. We are by far from being alone in that. Uh, a lot of the uh, aldermanic races, there are at least 15 seats up for grabs. A lot of neighborhood organizations are holding debates and forums for those candidates. Uh, ABC7 tomorrow night is going to be having a forum that they are going to air along with Univision with the mayoral candidates. Um, Mark and Jennifer, David has moderated these. He has planned these. He has set the rules for these. And um, we would like you to um, give us some of your best ideas here, David, for how to do a great forum. Well, I can tell you what worked for me, and I've done, as you point out, an awful lot of these, both as a news director and as the anchor who was, frankly, setting most of the rules. And a lot of them were similar to what uh, other uh, TV stations, newspapers, and other entities would do. Uh, But in looking at what everybody else was doing, I realized it really wasn't working. And I It was especially true when I was watching the national debates back in uh, 2020, and I wrote an op-ed piece for the Providence Journal about uh, what a disappointment these were. Uh, What I I guess maybe the easiest way for me to put it is I'll tell you what my recommendations are uh, from the top, and I can tell you some of the things that that I've done. First of all, if you've got debate rules, and of course they all have them, uh, those debate rules need to be enforced firmly. Uh, you just have to insist that, that they, they obey it. Uh, require uh, the debate moderators to be as tough as nails on misbehaving candidates, just as they would be if they were out uh, interviewing them and they were dodging their questions. Act the same way. Uh, I have found that everybody is so polite, they don't, they don't want to offend the person who is actually offending all the rules that they agreed to uphold in the first place. Um, one of the things I would do, and this probably would, would, I guess, be more applicable to uh, the national uh, CNN, ABC, NBC uh, debates when they come up uh, in 2024. Develop simple but piercing, I would call them piercing penalties for violating the debate rules. For example, if a candidate is speaking out of turn, which we saw just everywhere in 2020 and, and before that, Warn them, if they continue, you will immediately turn off their microphone until it's their turn to talk. That would solve the problem if you did that. If they persist, knowing that their voice might be carried over to the next person's microphone, if they persist in doing that, penalize them by forfeiting their next speaking turn in the next round of questioning. Candidates, as we all know, they love camera time. 
They never let an open microphone they didn't like unless they're on the run. And then you'll solve a lot of the debate bullying and conniving interruptions and infractions by simply invoking these kinds of sanctions. Nobody at the national level, and I don't know about the local level because I'm not everywhere, but nobody does that. These people can go ahead and violate the rules they agree to abide by with impunity. And that is why it becomes more and more serious. And then even the good guys and gals who are on the debate stage say, I'm not going to be bullied, so I'm going to bully back. So they go over their time. And the other thing I'll say is, and this would be sensitive to TV, don't have audiences as part of the debate. They have no value, uh, no valuable role, I should say. You know, in the first place, it's really mostly optics for TV. So a, a large audience will look good for the television audience. But you know what? This is not a game show. This is a debate. And the information coming from it is probably going to guide a lot of people into determining who they're going to vote for for office. So uh, those are just a couple of ideas. That, well, David, uh, before before Mark and Jennifer jump in, let me push back, play devil's advocate here. You know, you want to make sure they abide by their time, that they answer the question. But come on, you know, when they start going at it, when one of them calls the other one a liar and then they start yelling back and forth, that's great TV. That's going to get you ratings. That's going to get you clicks, David. That's not a pushback. That's an admission. (laughs) 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 You know, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, it, it's like hockey. Would, 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 uh, is the NHL going to tell players they can't fight? No, because, you know, the old joke is I went to a hockey game, uh, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Hmm. So it's the same thing with television. But, you know, the thing is, what's different here is this is about the fundamentals and the foundation of our democracy, uh, both local and national. And to me, I think uh, all of these violations, uh, which, uh, you know, they even strategize on, on, on doing this. I mean, they know when they go in, they're going to figure out where they want to break in, and they're going to try to make the other uh, woman or man look bad, and they're going to do it. And they're going to act like they're really outraged and all that. And sometimes they are outraged if something really uh, perilous is said. But the thing is, this is still a debate. Everybody agreed you're going to have the time. And I'll throw in another thing. You know, uh, most of the debates will have a provision where uh, a person is asked a question and they get 60 seconds, maybe a minute and a half, but usually 60 seconds to answer it. And then somebody else is going to challenge them and then they get a 30-second response. Well, many times, and I'm sure, uh, you know, both Jennifer and Mark know this, They'll take that 30 seconds very cleverly, and they will say, I want to respond to that. That was a stupid comment. Just like your comment about global warming. Then they take off on another topic altogether for, for another 25 seconds. It's all done with the intention of getting another point across, not to answer you know, the comment that was just made about education or whatever the topic was in that question. That's where a moderator should say, hold on. You're not you need to address this issue right now. And you've got 28 seconds left or 30 or whatever it is. I just think there's so much abuse here and it's tolerated by a bunch of wikis who were there as moderators and they don't insist on the very rules that they created. (laughs) Uh, Hang on a second, David. We need to take a break. And I'm sure that Jennifer and Mark are eager to jump into this discussion 
We are talking about media, and right now we are talking about debates and forums. Uh, then there's going to be a lot of them in the coming weeks here in the Chicago area. We'll be right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. The family meeting. Breaking news. McRib is back. Oh, my gosh. Then they got the nerve to say, get it while it's last. They always say that. (laughs) They always say that. And I never get it. it. I don't know if people are even buying it. The dude who created McRib must have had dirty pictures on somebody because they should have fired his or her ass a long time ago. Say, listen, I want this in the menu and I want my cut. (laughs) Right. Because I saw what you did with your nasty vibe. The family meeting. Sundays, 4 to 6 p.m. is sponsored by Identity Guard. Protect your identity for as little as $6 per month. Visit lookaftermyid.com. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Former Chicago Tribune and Sometimes editor Mark Jacob and former WGN Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze join me once a month for a segment on media. We are also joined by longtime newsman David Lehman, and we're talking about forums and debates and how to make them meaningful and how to keep them on track. Um, Dave Lehman told us about some of the programs that he has engineered, some of the techniques such as threatening to cut somebody's mic off that have been um, have been utilized to try to keep people sort of in line with the rules. Uh, Jennifer, I'll let you start our discussion here. Well, you know what struck me um, listening to the conversation, and <laughs> excellent uh, uh, points on uh, political debates uh, of today, was how similar many of the issues are to, let's say, Sunday talk shows um, or other types of uh, political media engagements. Um, this Back and forth, whether it's a debate or an interview show or an interview in a hallway of Congress, um, people have figured out what the rules of the game are and are trained and coached um, to do what they need to do to get their message out. And a debate is no different um, than, say, the Sunday talk shows, where, as we've talked about on the show before, um, it doesn't matter what the question is in a debate or a Sunday morning show or an interview. Personally, has something to say, they're going to say it, and they're going to roll right over you. And there has traditionally not been any consequences for that. As, you know, I've lamented before on your show, Joan, um, like Senator Rick Scott of Florida keeps getting invited back on Face the Nation, even though every time he goes on, he doesn't answer the questions and he tells lies and he keeps going. Well, the same issues are happening in political debates. Um, and one has to wonder, are we at the point where debates or forums, that notice they're all called forums, at least in Chicago, since maybe that's because there are too many people, they're not really debate. I don't know. Um, have they out you? outlive their usefulness and is there another way for us to get the information us as journalists to get the information to the community about what these politicians have done what they plan to do 
and get that information out instead of all of this gamesmanship. Honest to God, I can't stand watching these forums and debates when people are not following the rules and the moderators don't seem to be able to control anything. It's, you know, it's, it's just a nightmare, I think. And just, always, I, I, disagree, I, I did disagree with you at one point there. There is a difference between a political debate and a talk show on Sunday morning or an interview show somewhere else. This is something that has agreed upon rules. There are no rules on Sunday talk shows except common courtesy, uh, you know, and allowing somebody else to have their time as well. But this is structured. This is structured because it's a, it's the road to democracy in the, in the in the most sincere and strictest form. When you violate the rules that you agreed to, and you bully other people, and you're willing to risk the public approbation because you've done it, that's that gets to a, a more of a democracy issue than it does. Uh, you know, gee, that's not very nice that you talked over these other people and that you didn't give them all their time. These people are guaranteed time in a debate to get their point out, and I think there is a difference. Oh well. I guess I wasn't making myself clear. I totally get what you're saying. There are rules to agree to them, but they have no intention of following them. And most moderators are terrible at holding them to it. And so what we end up with is people who go in knowing they, they didn't agree, they're not really going to follow the rules, and moderators spending all their time saying, your time is up, your time is up, your time is up. <laughs> and it's become, in most cases, I think, unwatchable. And so now what do we do? Yeah. That's why I offered that turning off the microphone, penalizing them for uh, with the next question. They don't have the opportunity to answer it. Now there's a downside to that. But they, I'll tell you what, you, you do some of the things that I'm suggesting, and you'll clean up some of this mess. Well, wait, wait a second, David. But don't you think that also in today's atmosphere, if you did any of those things like tur- turning off the mic, but especially cutting their minutes, that they would just walk off? I mean, isn't it, isn't that what would happen in today's atmosphere? Uh, you know, they may, and that's their choice. Just as it was their choice to walk into the studio and obey the rules. All of this would be explained to them. When I had held all of my debates, probably somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 10 to 15 of them, when they walked out of my office, they knew, or this was weeks ahead of time in the planning of it, I laid all this out to them. Now, I didn't implement this turning off the microphone. That's something I'm proposing that the networks ought to consider doing when they had these debates in 2024 or 2023. Uh, you know, if, if they want to walk off as a grand gesture, they can do that. I mean, some people already do that. Remember, some people don't show up for debates because either they don't want to or they don't have to. And they do the, the empty chair. And I've done that. I, I had uh, a mayor of Providence one time uh, in a debate say, you know, he wasn't going to agree to my rules. And I said, well, that's, I said very calmly, well, that would be your choice. But our choice is to have an empty chair so that the audience knows we invited you. You chose not to come. Well, let me tell you something. He blinked and he showed up. Hey, I have a question for you. I was curious whether, um, do you think it's the role of the moderator to fact check? I mean, or is that the role of the opponent or the rival in the debate? I mean, if somebody, if some candidate comes out with something that's just, just plain a lie, 
Is the, is it the role of the moderator to correct that lie, or to just wait for the opponent to do so? You know, that's a really good question, and I think that would be a great newsroom debate. Uh, I would probably, my initial thought is, uh, unless it's so obvious, you know, if you said the sun didn't come up today and everybody has a sunburn, I think uh, I would probably point that out, maybe even in a jocular way. But I think for the for the moderator to play fact checker while he's trying to restrain people or keep them on guard, not on guard, but on on on, uh, on point here and obeying the rules, that may be uh, a cross uh, check in a way that may not be a good one at this point. My I instinct right good. now is is that it would like in this thing that we're doing in a couple of weeks. It, I, Fact checking during the proceedings would make me feel like I was inserting myself into exactly. the forum, and and I don't know that yeah. I'd be comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah, you're you're the referee, really. Uh, unfortunately, that we haven't seen very many good referees in the last uh, few uh, uh, elections when when it comes to these debates. But uh, I, I think I think you're right. I think you can't be the referee and, and also be telling. One of the players, they can't do this or they can't do that or what they what they just did wasn't right unless you throw a penalty flag. So I, I think that, that that's a good question, but I think you'd leave that up either to, uh, you know, some of these have uh, have a moderator and two other questioners. The other questioners would uh, most appropriately uh, could, could jump in and, uh, at some point and make that either correction. The other thing is, if it's something that's a close call, uh, now, you, now you've injected yourself as a reporter, as a questioner, into the debate. And what if it turns out you were you weren't right? Now, now you <laughs> shaded the right. shaded the debate a bit unfairly about what you said because you you didn't quite have it right, or you didn't understand what the individual said the way you thought you did. But it's a good question, though. Of course, I would never do that. Um, I would never insert myself with incorrect information into a forum. Okay, we have um, we have exactly about a minute left. Uh, so, Mr. Layman, give me one tip for this forum I'm doing uh, in a week and a half. Okay, here's one that I that I did that I left out. Uh, I have a 15 second rule. If the person doesn't answer the question that was posed within 15 seconds, show that they're answering it on point. I jump in and I admonish them to answer the question because they are not. And they risk that embarrassment with me stepping in. Okay, Uh, we will take that under advisement, Mr. Lehman. Thank you for joining our conversation. We have these uh, lively talks once a month, and you have made today's all the more interesting. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you, uh, Jennifer and Mark. Enjoyed this as well. We are are going to be taking a break. Uh, Jennifer Schulze is a former news director at WGN-TV Channel 9. Mark Jacob, of course former editor at the Sun-Times and the Trib. Once a month, we get together and we talk about the media. Uh, We were very happily joined by newsman David Lehman from Rhode Island. He is now going off and probably having dinner. And uh, Jennifer and Mark and I are going to continue the discussion. If you would like to join our conversation, that number is 773 763 
9278-773-763-9278. You can call me on that line, or uh, if you would rather, you can text in a comment on that line. We'll try to get to all that right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Your lawn drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT. 820. See, broadcast professional forgets to turn on her mic. I am joined by Jennifer Schulze, former TV news director, and Mark Jacob, former newspaper editor. We get together to talk about the media. And one thing that I think is interesting, because usually we have these discussions where we sort of tease something out. But the media has kind of been, at least social media, has kind of been really doing a study on the coverage of Biden documents versus Trump documents. And I don't know that the mainstream has done it quite as well as social media, but I've seen all different kinds of graphics on how the two situations are different, how the two, the one president, the one former president are handling things different. Let's talk about that a little bit. Jennifer, you want to start? Sure. Um, I have um, more positive things to say about the coverage of the documents than I do, for example, of the other big story that's happening, the fiscal cliff. I think that the media, for the most part, um, is is working really hard to tell an accurate story. And, you know, the apples and oranges, like you said, there's a lot of graphics and a lot of um, how these cases are different. Um, the problem, however, is in, uh, like it always is, in headlines, in tweets, in, um, you know, those, those, Breaking news, and I put that in air quotes, um, happenings that the media tends to get wrong on its way to being first or on its way just to being stupid. Um, you know, the the other night I was struck by uh, NBC News reposted a story on its Twitter feed that was more than 24 hours old about the documents and and. It was completely out of date to do that. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you do that? Are you, is there, you know, it just wasn't smart. You have to be smart in covering these things. There's a lot at stake here. And the media has it, you know, really, you know, is in the toilet, I think, in terms of credibility. And they just have to work extra hard to get these their coverage right. And for, so I do think the documents is, Stuff is pretty good, although I was watching before I came on the air with you, I was watching clips from today's news conference and or press briefing at the White House. And honestly, everyone in that room was out of their minds. Um, so if any if you want to look, look in what up, particular way today? Well, they um, the reporters were grilling Karine Jean-Pierre. Over and over again, they didn't understand why they weren't getting 
a briefing on the documents in the briefing room beyond what she was telling them. And um, they just all kept asking the same question over and over again. And she kept answering it and she kept saying, I've answered your question. Then the next person would ask the same question. And it was, I don't know. I, I like when reporters work hard and go for the information. This seemed, I don't know. It just seemed a little crazy to me. Um, uh, so I, I encourage people to look that up. Aaron Rupar always does a really good job of uh, sharing clips of things like this on his Twitter feed. So if you're interested, go Aaron with two A's, see what you think. Aaron you can find him at Rupar, R-U-P-A-R. He's, he is yeah. excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So take a look at that. Um, contrasting that, I think the coverage of this fiscal cliff story um, just makes me crazy because some of the headlines are, um, here's one from CNN, chaos in Congress. No, that's not true. There isn't chaos in Congress. There's chaos by Republicans. But when you say Congress and you're not being more specific, you're telling a different story. Um, I find another headline from NPR. Close to hitting the debt ceiling, the government was, must win over House Republicans. What? No, they don't have to do that. And they, they won't. One. Right. That, this, I, I, I was just looking at headlines because I wanted a sampling. Reuters, this is their headline, and I think it's excellent. Republican House conservatives threaten the debt limit default to cut social programs. That is all accurate, and that tells you the story. Chaos in Congress versus that. Just think about that. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting few days, weeks, however long this particular story plays out. Most um, news reporters don't know how to cover um, business stories like this, so they're going to get it wrong. But it's not a, you know, this is not a both sides story. You know, the problem with that story, with the debt limit story to me, is that it's that, it's not, you know, Americans have such a short attention span and they want, you know, immediate gratification or immediate punishment. And they're not going to get either in the, in the debt ceiling thing. If we default, we won't know how bad it is or how much damage it's caused right away. We might know in a month or, you know, half a year or something. So it, so it, it just becomes really hard for the regular people to to know whether to care about it or to know what to do about mm-hmm. it. But I mean, if it, it, my feeling is if it ever happened, it would uh, it would kill the Republicans. I think that I think that could be everyone would know it was their fault. And I think it would really hurt him in 2024. And uh, and I think they know it, too. I think they're I think it's a giant bluff. And, they, and they're, they're trying to get some concessions so they can declare victory. But they they know that. that I mean, if they, if, they, if they scuttle all that, they're going to be costing their multimillion dollar um, donors a lot of money, for one thing. But uh, but back to the. Uh, you know, to the uh, to the other question of you know of the the, the documents, I I, tell, I I agree that the initial coverage was very good, uh, surprisingly good. I was already you know based on past experience, I was already for it to be terrible. But uh, they did do you know expl- explanatory stuff, making it really clear that uh, you know the Biden side self-identified that there was a problem, and uh, you know immediately you know worked on it rather than lying uh, in lying to the government and pretending they weren't there and stuff like that. And the, the number of documents is also you know different. And then, so they made all those things clear and that's great. 
but the problem is now is that there's this this drip 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 happening with the with the scandal, the so-called you know Biden record scandal, and uh, and that's not good because it, because the more that there's not any other news to bump that out of the news, and the more that they, you know reporters are screaming at the press secretary over the issue, the more people regular people start thinking that it is a big deal, and that maybe that the situations are equivalent. That drives me crazy. The idea that people saying, "Well, this is going to make it hard for people to, for anyone to charge Trump." Well, why would that be the case? You got different prosecutors working on the two cases. It's not like everything. Jesus, if everything had to be comparative, you know, if everyone's sentence had to be exactly even, you know, had to be a comp with somebody else's sentence in Utah for the same crime, then things would be a lot more complicated. And 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 that's not what that's not the way things go. I think the prosecutors are going to make their own decisions on the individual cases, and Trump's is far worse. So. I guess what I'm saying is that I think the initial coverage was good, but now all this additional coverage is starting to turn the Biden thing into much bigger, uh, much of a bigger deal in the public's mind than it actually is. And that's what I, I worry about that. I yeah, do too, I, Mark. I agree yeah. with you. Go ahead, Jennifer. Well, I was going to say you could see that again in these clips from today's press briefing. Um, the media is... Um, Upset might be the right word, um, and their their anger or their whatever that it, that emotion is is driving a more frenetic level of coverage than the story merits, and that is always problematic. Right now, I would have to say that I think some of the wounds are self-inflicted by the Biden folks. Now, now they. You know, the big rule in politics is to get it all out at the same time. Now, maybe they didn't have that that luxury because in the midst of them trying to figure it all out, something got leaked to CBS and then the story broke and then they were in big trouble. But they, the fact that you've had, you know, the initial revelation, then you had the the Biden's garage revelation, and then you had the revelation that there were more documents than just one in Biden's garage, means you have like three different news stories in three different cycles. And so... That's not ideal. And so, I mean, ideally, the Biden people would have figured out a way to just get it all out there at the same time and just make it a one-day story instead of a multi-day story. Uh, but then, but in another way that the Biden people have messed up, in my opinion, is that it, you know, is is anyone who says that you know, well, we can't talk about it. If there's a you know investigation going on. That's not true. They could talk about it all they want. Nobody's stopping them from talking about it. They need to frame it differently. They need to say. We have decided not to comment on the specifics of this because we don't want to further taint or call into question the conduct of the Justice Department. We want the Justice Department to do its work without us, you know, causing and kicking up any dust in the press and just go about your business and let's let the system work. That's what they need to say. They don't yeah. need to say something, something like that that has no heat to it. And I think. I would recommend coupling that with, you know what, um, as soon as the first documents uh, were found, President Biden told everybody, right. you know, get the lawyers everywhere where there's any papers. We're going to make sure that there's no stone left unturned. Just something to show that he's on top of it. He cares. And um, uh, we need to take a break. But I'm I'm going to say something that I feel a little almost uncomfortable about. I really enjoyed Jen Psaki, and it's not that she didn't get irked, but Jen Psaki diffused a lot of stuff 
with um, with humor. And, you know, I could see a Jen Psaki saying, guys, I've answered this. How many times do you want to you want to spend the whole afternoon doing this? Because I'm here for you. Um, and I think what I've seen in uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, she makes me uncomfortable. She seems very quick to anger. And I don't know if you want that in your press spokesperson. I know I've said something a little bit eh, uncomfortable, and we will see if we want to talk more about this when we come right back after a break. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And this is my monthly media segment with former news director Jennifer Schulze and former uh, newspaper editor Mark Jacob. Uh, before we went to the break, we were talking about how the press corps has been going after Karine Jean-Pierre about Biden and the documents and why won't she say more. And she has been saying that they're not going to comment on an ongoing investigation. But what I've observed, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's just the press conferences I've seen. Um, I am made a little bit uncomfortable by her. Uh, first of all, she's serious, which is all well and good. But I have seen her, it seems to me, be very quick to anger. And I don't think that does anybody any good. And it certainly doesn't do her boss any good. Not that we know reporters can be annoying creatures who need to be smacked down periodically. But um, it seems that Jen Psaki brought a little bit of... Um, Humor. She never seemed to get sucked into the emotion the way the current press secretary does. Do you guys think I'm completely out of my mind saying this? Yes. <laughs> I don't okay. agree with you at all. Tell me why. I don't agree with you at all. Um, I, well, I just watched her, and I watch her fairly often. Um, I think she gets exasperated more easily, but I don't think she gets angry. I think she stays pretty calm, cool, and collected in the face of idiocy a lot. Well, I don't mean angry in the sense that she yells or stomps, no, she's not but I think she gets angry. testy an awful lot. Yeah, so did Jen Psaki. I used to watch her all the time, too, especially with Pete Ducey. And then there was someone else. There are a couple of gadflies in the room. No, I I, I don't agree with that. I She's not... Um, you know, she doesn't have as much government experience as Jen Psaki, and so sometimes I think the information doesn't come as quickly. But, no, I think she's doing a pretty good job. I do also want to comment on something else she said. You know, CBS reported that story about the documents first on January 9th, and then Biden um, spoke in front of the camera on January 10th. So um, he did come out and gave quite – I just Googled it – gave quite a lengthy um, – explanation and comment to that point he has not subsequently said much but he has said a few things he's saying less and less and you know how the press is they Mm -hmm. don't like that they want somebody to talk to him about it every day god darn it every day and apparently they got a briefing today and they they weren't happy enough with that so they wanted something else but it wouldn't kill Joe Biden uh, every day to say, you know what, we're digging into it, we're getting to the bottom of it, like, and then moving on. I don't know. Sometimes when when there's a feeding frenzy, you have to, 
you have to you have to throw them at least a, a little tiny fish. What do you think, Mr. Jacob? Well, I I agree that uh, the current press secretary is not as strong as uh, Jen Psaki uh, was, but that's just because Jen Psaki is like the best press secretary I ever saw. She's, I mean, I thought she was just super good at parrying, you know, the, you know these ridiculous assertions people made and kind of and kind of mocking stupid questions without seeming rude, but seeming, but, but always seeming like she was above the fray. Exactly. And that they didn't rattle her, but they were just kind of, you know, testy little insects who were, you know, buzzing around her. Uh, and, and, you know, which is, I guess I, I don't think that the current press secretary is bad. I just think that, that, She's not quite as good as Saki. And um, I, I do also agree with something that was just said about we have to uh, that you do have to feed the Washington press a little something every day. And uh, it doesn't have to be particularly new and it doesn't have to be, you know, just groundbreaking. But just the messaging should, ought to be what I said a few minutes ago. Just say, say, you know, we, you know, we said we've said how this uh we discovered these documents so you know we're in our possession we're sorry about that uh we know that that shouldn't have happened uh but as far as anything else and all the particulars we're going to leave it in the hands of the able hands of our justice department and uh that's just the appropriate thing to do and we're going to let we're gonna, you know just say we're going to let the system work and, well, and, they, she does say that every day, Mark. She she says it every day at her press briefings. We just don't see that every day mm-hmm. because that's not part of the with the clips that they play on the Today Show or whatever. But she has a press briefing every Monday through Friday, and she's been saying the same thing. And they do talk about it, and that's all they talk about. I'm not sure they talked about anything else um, today, yesterday, or the day before. So it's interesting. Well, Can I throw one other? Oh, go no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, I I love this topic, but I want to throw this in because I like when we have a topic and then there's something that actually happened that day that's relevant <laughs> to it. And I was scroll, scrolling through Aaron Rupar, who we talked about earlier, um, and I recommend everybody follow him because I think he does a, a really great job. And he tweeted this this morning. Um, first, he quote tweeted um, Justin... Barango, I don't think I said his name right, media reporter for the Daily Beast, who writes, during the first 30 minutes of her show today, Fox News anchor Harris Faulkner had four different topics centered solely on what critics were saying. And Aaron Rupar writes, this is an extremely common technique Fox News uses to misleadingly portray its own editorial positions as coming from an independent source. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what we were talking about before. It's that people are saying, but really we're saying it. We just don't want to say we're saying it. You know, another thing, if I'm not recommending that anyone go to the Fox News website, because let's just be really clear, Fox News is not journalism. It's anti-journalism. And but I, I check that every now and then just to see what they're up to. And they have another little trick they like to pull. They always like to say, Twitter explodes over Meghan Markle's XXX, you know, whatever. Or Twitter this, or or Twitter slaps back at some set. You know, it's, it's all like Twitter as an actor, as if as if Twitter is just oh, one right. thing. And, and 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 you know, Twitter might be just some goof with six followers who just who always says crazy things. 
but they but they latch on that. You you watch. I mean, if you do go there, and I recommend that you don't. But if you do <laughs> go there, you, you will find out that that they the Twitter is in maybe you know I don't know like maybe five or ten percent of their headlines because they are doing exactly what you just said. They're trying to put it in someone else's mouth so it doesn't make so it doesn't seem as if they're just saying it when in fact they are just saying it. Mm-hmm. Well, let me add to that. Media matters occasionally will point that out and they'll do a screen grab of Fox where they put up these tweets, you know, people, Oh, Twitter's exploding on this topic and they'll have a series of tweets up on the screen. Then media matters. will do an article later in the day where they go and they'll say, and that one is a bot and that one has three followers and that one is, you know, not really the person that says it is, you know, they will fact check who Fox is claiming as these grand sources. And it happens all the time, right? Which, who they, does they that, Jennifer? Something. Media hmm? matters. What site does that? Media matters. Oh, oh media matters. They'll go, and, they'll go and they'll pull, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll investigate who, who are these, you know, these Twitter shamans that are, are saying right. these incredible things that we have to report on in this segment. And it always turns out that it's, you know, mom, 7249 <laughs> with six followers. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, yeah. And, you know, that you mentioned that Media Matters is a terrific website. I mean, it's a good source. They, they you know, they, they're fast, they're accurate, and they, you know, they... They always bring the receipts. They always, you know, show what they're what they're talking about, and in a way that you know, you know, that they're not just making it up. They know it. Oh, absolutely! I couldn't agree more. And anybody who's interested in it, um, I, what I think they say about themselves, and I'll say it too, is they watch Fox, so we don't have to. And then they, but they do a lot of analysis and fact checking, and um, really digging into. Um, what is going on in that crazy uh, universe, right-wing universe. And they don't just repurpose the sound bites and let them stand alone. Like I think a lot of people do. And I don't like that. I don't like when they take the crazy from Fox and just retweet it or repost it. I think that's dangerous. Media matters will tell you the story behind the comment and give you a lot of analysis. Well, speaking of that, I just looked them up online and they have a graphic cable news cable network coverage of MAGA election denier that's the Pena guy accused in multiple political shootings um MSNBC gave it 2 minutes 20 seconds CNN 1 minute 35 Fox News gave it 1 second of coverage 1 second it's if you're looking on Twitter it's at @mmfa Guys, that music means Lady B is telling me it's time for us to wrap this up. Mark Jacob, Jennifer Schulze, thank you as always. This has been so much fun, and I think it's been really informative. Appreciate you being here always. Thanks for having us. Um, We we are wrapping up. uh, Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.